thanks for tuning in to the Durban Memorial Baptist Church podcast. We're a group of sinners saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and here you will hear the Word of God. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Durban Memorial Baptist Church podcast. If you want to find out more about our church, you can check out www.durbanchurch.org. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or you can give us a call or text to 859-813-0369. Also, you can shoot us an email at brad at durbanchurch.org. Have a wonderful day and God bless. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It is once again a great privilege to steward this pulpit and to bring the Word of God to the saints of Durban Memorial Baptist Church. I want to tell a story this morning. Twas the night before Christmas, and Bob, armed with a toolbox and a can do attitude, decided to tackle the challenge of assembling his daughter's dream gift, a majestic unicorn-themed playhouse. Bob dumped the contents of the box onto the living room floor and feeling a surge of confidence said, who needs directions? He declared, waving the instruction manual dismissively, ignoring the meticulous labeled parts. He dove headfirst into the sea of plastic panels and bolts and colorful stickers. With each passing moment, the playhouse began to take shape, or so Bob thought. Walls were upside down, stickers were misplaced, and bolts were used where screws were meant to be. Bob, oblivious to the impending disaster, chuckled to himself. He said, a little unconventional, but it adds character. As the playhouse neared completion, a realization struck Bob. The roof was an awkwardly shaped puzzle piece that simply refused to fit. And so undeterred, he grabbed a hammer and declaring, if it doesn't fit, I'll make it fit. After a series of ill-fated hammer blows, the playhouse resembled more of a horse with a mohawk than a charming abode for an imaginative unicorn play. Bob proudly surveyed his creation, convinced he had outsmarted his instructions, presents it on Christmas morning. Christmas morning arrives and his daughter Lily races downstairs with anticipation and tears off the wrapping paper her eyes widening at the sight of her new unicorn playhouse. However, that excitement quickly turned into confusion as she looked around the wobbly structure. Daddy, why does this horse have a mohawk, she said. Bob scratched his head and realized his folly, and as Lily giggled at the quirky little playhouse, Bob sheepishly admitted, maybe I should have followed the directions. Sometimes even the most well-intentioned elves need to consult the manual. With it being Christmas Eve, I thought that this illustration on the importance of directions would be pertinent. First of all, as a reminder to all the dads out there building a playhouse this evening, follow the directions. Uh, But secondly, you, you see, 
For the past few months, we've been looking at what I would describe as like the soul of the church. We've been looking at uh, Acts chapters 1 through 4. We walked through those and we saw the local church is a gift of God to believers as a, a special place for unity, power, grace, and care to be displayed. We, we've seen the great beauty there is in a church that is burning for the glory of God. We've been challenged not to be burnt out, but to be burning anew, fueled by the power of the name of Jesus Christ. The local church, the gathering, the ecclesia, churches just like here at Durban Memorial Baptist Church, are a gift to believers. Churches are a good thing that deserve to be cultivated well. But if you think back on Bob a moment ago, he had every intention of putting together a great gift, but ended up with something else, something less than it should have been. Why? Because he threw out the accompanying instructions. What was originally intended to be a sweet gift for his daughter got off course somewhere along the way following his own desires rather than the instructions by the maker of the toy. The same can be true for the church when we neglect the instruction manual. For the early churches formed in Acts, there was no instruction manual written at that time. They would be gathering together. They would be devoted to preaching and to teaching and to prayer and to care. But beyond that, there wasn't a formal guideline given. The sad side of this is that as you read through the epistles, those are the letters in the New Testament following Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. After the Gospels and after Acts, you read the epistles, you see the apostles are often addressing churches who have, in just a few short years or months, gotten off course. Much of what's contained in the letters to the churches in the New Testament, those epistles as they're called, are corrective literature. They are correcting problems, corrections in doctrine, correcting in practice within the church. But there are three letters in the New Testament, in the epistles, that are particularly instructive, specifically for the functioning of the church, for giving order, as the name of the series calls it here, to the church. And these are pastoral letters in First and Second Timothy and in Titus. God, in his infinite wisdom and grace to us, to his people, through these pastoral letters, gives the church an instruction manual, if you would, a manual to follow in our practice in the church. If Acts, the book of Acts, shows us the beauty of a church burning for the glory of God, then these pastoral letters, what we're jumping into here with 1 Timothy, shows us the design of a church burning for the glory of God. You might be thinking at this moment, Pastor Brad, it's Christmas Eve. Shouldn't we be talking about a manger scene or the shepherds? I get that. I understand that. I do. We, we need to know, though, all of Scripture ties together into one storyline. Are you following me here? In Christmas, we celebrate God putting on flesh, right? That Jesus stepped into this creation. Now, why did Jesus put on flesh well, to be the sacrifice that would bring many sons to glory. How does he bring many sons to glory? Through the ministry of the local church. How do we know all of this? Because it's re recorded in the word of God. 
It ultimately doesn't really matter where we are diving into the word of God because it all ties together into the unified story of God's grace. The order of the church is directly influenced by the incarnate Christ. It's all one story. So with that in mind, if you haven't already, open your Bibles to 1 Timothy. Today, I want to look at the first 11 verses of this, and we're going to be gleaning from God's word the theological foundation and practical application of order in his church. Let's begin with verses 1 and 2, the greeting of this letter. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So this is a fairly simple on the surface introduction, and you'll find a lot of these in the beginning of the epistles that sound a lot like one another in the beginning of the letters to the New Testament churches. Each of them may have their own intricacies, and I want to quickly go through three important truths contained in a simple introduction for us. Number one, we see why the book of 1 Timothy is important to us today. Well, we, we, we see that the Apostle Paul is writing this letter to a guy named Timothy. There, there are a lot of people who try to discount or to uh, deny the importance of the, uh, and influence of the ministry of the Apostle Paul. They want to separate him from the rest of the New Testament, have the New Testament without Paul. However, that's foolish for a few reasons. Number one, the book of Acts highlights the special way in which God chooses Paul to be a missionary to the Gentiles. The book of Acts also is directly connected to the gospel of Luke. And so it seems if you want to try to throw out Paul from your theology, you'd also have to not only throw out that epistles that he wrote, but you'd also have to throw out the book of Acts because he's highlighted well there. And if you're going to throw out the book of Acts, well, that can't be trustworthy because it's written by a guy named Luke. So you'd also have to throw out the gospel of Luke. And then all of a sudden you wouldn't know it, but there goes the birth of Christ. Right? So we can't just separate out Paul from the rest of Scripture. I'm telling you all, this is all one story that ties together. If you go down that slippery slope, instead, we're better served by accepting the learning from the Apostle Paul, accepting his writings, and seeing how they are congruent with the rest of Scripture as they are. So, Paul refers to himself in this introduction here as an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior and Christ Jesus our hope. After Paul's conversion, the Lord directly says to Paul, this is recorded in Acts, he says that Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. God chose Paul specifically for establishing the early church and the early Gentile Church, that, that means as we read this letter, this is important to us. This is important because this book is a letter on the order of the church. We need to be reading this attentively. This book is of immense value to us. This is instruction from God through the pen of Paul. Christ chose Paul to write these words for the very sake of his name and for the benefit of his church. So that's why this is important for us. 
A second concept that I would like us to see in this truth is something that you could call, or in this introduction, is something that you might be able to call the Timothy principle. Paul refers to Timothy as his true child in the faith. Most believe Timothy was converted as a boy on Paul's first missionary journey. Timothy was taken under Paul's wing and uh, encouraged to be a part of the ministry. And throughout the epistles, we learn Timothy is this young, timid man with a fragile constitution. He got got tummy aches. (laughs) From what we read in Scripture, Timothy isn't this imposing fellow, this uh, lording presence, but rather a plain, average person with a heart to serve the Lord. Throughout this epistle, we'll see that God has given Timothy, this weak-stomached Timothy, a tall task of ordering and uh, uh, working in the church in Ephesus where corruption has begun to creep in. We learn from this, and through a survey of history, the Timothy principle, if you would, is that God often chooses to use nobodies. Nobody's nobody's special. The wonderful thing about nobodies is that nobodies don't think they're somebody. Nobodies depend on God to do what they know they can't do. Oswald Chambers wrote all throughout history. God has chosen and used nobodies because their unusual dependence on him made possible the unique display of his power and grace. He chose and used somebodies only when they renounce Dependence on their natural abilities and resources. Listen, this Christmas, you might think you're a nobody. Join the club. The great thing for all of us nobodies to note as we begin this look at First Timothy is God uses nobodies. The only reason we, we can be anything is because of, he's somebody. The third truth I want to bring to our attention here in this introduction That order in the church begins and ends with Christ. Christ is at the center of all things. Notice once more in this verse, God is called our Savior and Christ Jesus our hope. That phrase, God our Savior, directly ties to that first Christmas carol of Mary's heart in uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 46, we read it in Sunday school this morning. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. The salvation that Mary looks forward to in her songs and that Paul knew so well and that unites the church together is the salvation that only comes from God who sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins, to pay for our sins. Not only has God saved us, but he has given us hope. He's given us hope in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus, our hope. Verse 1, his resurrection, Christ's resurrection, assures all who believe in him of eternal glory. We care about the church because it's the place centered around doing what work the Lord has called us to do. By his grace, we have been, by, been saved. By his mercy, the Lord has given us the work for the advancement of his kingdom. And we have peace and hope knowing that we have been reconciled unto the holy God for all of eternity. 
Because God has done so much for us, he is at the center of all that we do. And we ought to steward well the gift that he has given us using the instructions that he has given us, as we'll see as we walk through First Timothy. So, in just a, a simple two-verse introduction, we learn that this book is written for our benefit that God uses nobodies like us for his glory and that he is at the center of every single thing we do. What a way to start a book. Let's press on to the next section. Look at verses three through seven. Paul writes to Timothy, he says, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from, the, from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make assertions. So, here... We are seeing and we're introduced to a specific problem within the Ephesian church at this time. If you're familiar with the uh, early history of the church, this might cause you to wonder what happened. You see, Paul was in Ephesus, was at these churches for three years. He spent three years directly ministering to the Ephesian church. They spent three whole years getting direct teaching from one of the most uh, profound teachers in all of human history. In the years prior to this letter, Paul wrote, wrote a letter to the church at Ephesus that was one of, full of some of the most glorious truth in all of Scripture. If you flip through your, uh, your New Testament, you'll see the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians highlights the grandeur and glory of God in an incredible way. As Paul leaves, he also doesn't leave the church high and dry. He leaves them Timothy. He leaves them his protege. By all accounts, this church had everything going for it. But now something's changed. There's a, a problem that has to be addressed. Before we get into the specifics of the problem at Ephesus, I want us to note something for practical application here. If things can go wrong at Ephesus, they can go wrong at Durban. Catch me on that. If they can go wrong at Ephesus, they can go wrong at fill-in-the-blank church. Right? If three years under the direct ministry of the Apostle Paul didn't prevent them from getting off track, then the preaching ministry of all the beloved pastors that have ever stepped into this pulpit in our past are no guarantee that we won't get off track either. Within 48 months of Paul stepping out the door and having daily ministry in Ephesus, within 48 months, the church is confronting apostasy face to face. In fact, the propensity for straying isn't limited to Ephesians, to, the, to Ephesus. Most of the epistles are corrective of some kind. They say, hey, this is a problem that y'all already got going on, that we have to fix this problem. Churches were getting off track from the gospel. This should be evidence for all of us this morning that we must be on guard from drift. 
it can happen there. It can happen anywhere. If the churches started by direct apostolic influence could get off track in a matter of months, we must not be so prideful to think that that could never happen here. That's why we must review. We must refer. We must stick to the manual like we're doing in this series here. Going back to God's word to evaluate his prescription for how the church ought to be ordered for the functioning of the local church. So now that we know the possibility of a problem exists in general, I want to take us to the specifics of the problems. Look at the specific problem that Timothy is facing at the church in Ephesus. The biggest problem addressed here in the onset of Paul's letter to Timothy is the problem of false teaching. And it becomes evident that at least some of the elders, if not all of the elders in the church around Ephesus, were drifting from the gospel once delivered once and for all to the saints. And they brought in other teachings. You'll see that they would go beyond the word of the law. They would be mixing in myths and end up with something wholly different from the gospel. They got off on fancy things that had nothing to do with the teaching of Christ. This is a big problem. Why? Because in Acts chapter 4, as we read just a few weeks ago, there is no other name in which we can be saved than Jesus. We don't need that other stuff. The gospel doesn't need our addition. Anything we add is a subtraction. A major problem I see in the church as a whole today is that we often think ourselves so enlightened that we must go beyond the simple meaning of the text to find something deeper. Okay? We've seen this in recent years with new interpretations of David's sin with Bathsheba. We see this in modern attempts to make the creation narrative an allegory rather than a literal telling of events. The same is done with uh, Jonah. That was just a, a thought experiment, not a literal occurrence. Many folks stare at the pages of Scripture and instead of accepting the plain meaning as God breathed this truth, they twist it to their own bent. While I see this happening in the theological world today, it's also nothing new. That's really, in many ways, the problem that is here in 1 Timothy. Some of the elders wanted to uh, be seen as these highfalutin and respected rabbis in the temples. They wanted to be looked at as these respected teachers. And so they thought it was good to go beyond the plain meaning of the text and to blend in genealogies and myths into their teaching. They're Teaching resulted in speculation rather than stewardship. What does that mean? Well, I appreciate challenging our congregation. I hope that you are challenged in your thought every time that we preach, every time we come together for a teaching. But ultimately, I don't want our services to be concluded with speculation rather than stewardship. Teaching in the church is intended to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. But for false teachers in Ephesus and the deconstructionists today, if you would, they use their platform to, instead of promoting how to work for the glory of God, to promote speculation. It's vain discussions you see there in verse 6. They want to be teachers, but they have no idea what they're talking about because they've denied the plain meaning of the text right in front of their face. Our Kent Hughes shared this about these teachers. He said their style and approach is timeless. It's 
spoken softly with a distant heavenly look in the moist eye. What you believe is good, it's a good starting point, but there is more for those of us who have paid the price of meditation and study that we can reveal to you. Adam stands for the spirit. Eve represents the flesh. One is good, the other is bad. And all of this is bogus added stuff onto the scripture. But don't think that that was just what was happening here in Ephesus. It continues today. There have been incredible distortions that uh, the number 666 has gone through uh, to spell out the name of every international villain from Caesar to Napoleon to Hitler to Stalin. A few years ago, there was a best-selling book, The Bible Code, which was a tenacious interpretation of the Old, Old Testament. It claimed that the, an Israeli mathematician, Dr. Elijah Hu Rips, had decoded all of the Bible with a computer formula, unlocking 3,000-year-old prophecies of events such as the Kennedy assassination and the election of Bill Clinton. Everything from the Holocaust to Hiroshima, from the moon landing to the collision of a comet with Jupiter was unlocked by the Bible code. Religious novelties abound, and they happen today. Fantastic claims of new truth about everything from raising perfect children to restraining the aging process. The problem is that these teachings and their systems might not deny the gospel, but they replace it. They get us all caught up in sensational speculations instead of focusing on the gospel. I'll be blunt this morning. There are a lot of things we could talk about in this building that ain't worth a nickel. There are a lot of hills that people want to die on for the name of Jesus Christ, even, they say, that are simply personal preference tied in a spiritual bow. For instance, this year it seems to be a resurgence online in arguing about the pagan origins of Christmas. There are a lot of people in the name of Christ telling other Christians that they should not be celebrating Christmas at all. Now, we can all agree Christmas has been over commercialized in certain pockets of it. Absolutely. But those proofs that you see tying it to paganism will be presented in a two minute clip on your Facebook profiles. They are based on outright lies. If you want to know more about that, I'm not going to go into all the details. Come find me. I'll give you two good resources before you walk out the door. Christmas is celebrating uh, Christ incarnate and the, the, the history stands on the same side. But I will say this, there is one pagan tradition that I hope does continue on and I hope it continues on heartily converting to Christianity. My point here, we don't have to move beyond the simple beauty of Scripture. We don't have to add extra burdens. In fact, we are called not to do so. To place our convictions on other people that aren't explicitly written in Scripture. The point of all we do in the church is defined for us in verse 5. Look at that. I want to highlight verse 5 specifically. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. What is this love? What are we talking about? What is the heart of the church? Well, it is a love for God first 
And then love for those around us, the classic dimensions of love and the Ten Commandments, as Jesus so eloquently proclaims, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor and your, as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Love for others is made possible and is fueled by love for God. John Piper said, love is the overflow of joy in God, which gladly meets the needs of others. The false teachers in Ephesus were twisting the law and adding in their own things to drive their own fame and speculations. We're called not to do that. But the abuse of the law doesn't mean there is no use of the law. We study God's word each and every single Sunday that we come together. When we get together in groups, we often bring up God's word together. God's word is quite good and beneficial for the church. We see all throughout Psalm 119 that the law is something to delight in. We see one reason why in our next verses. Read verses 8 through 11 with me in 1 Timothy. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, the men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, which I have been entrusted The message between verses 8 and 9 could be summarized in this way. Because he understands the law is for lawless people, he uses it lawfully. When we understand the law is for lawless people, we use it lawfully. In other words, the only person who uses the law lawfully is the one who understands the law is meant not for righteous persons, but for sinners. The law is to instruct ungodly people. It is there to show sinners how to differentiate between good and evil. In church, we talk about the reality of sin as made known to us in the Word of God. We talk about the reality of sin because it allows us to see the grace of God. The proper use of the law is to see how it points out our need of a Savior. You see, the, the list that we walk through there, there in verse uh, 9 through 10 there and 11 there, the, the verse that we are looking at there, we read those words and we think that this is describing the worst of the worst. But did you know that each of these groups directly corresponds in order with the Ten Commandments? Throw up this graphic. It's really hard to read. I'm going to try to read it for us. On the left side there, you have the Ten Commandments. On the right side there, you have the the words in order from uh, 1 Timothy 9 through 10 there. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. You see the lawless and the disobedient in 1 Timothy. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. We see the ungodly and the sinners. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, the unholy. Remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. 
profane. Honor your mother, your father and your mother. Those who strike their fathers and their mothers. You shall not murder. Murderers. You shall not commit adultery. You see the sexually immoral and the men who practice homosexuality. You shall not steal. We have the enslavers. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, which are liars and perjurers. You shall not covet, which is covered by whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine. You see, this list given to us in the middle of First Timothy verses uh, nine and ten, it's not to be seen as a parade of a parade of the bad guys, but as the labels deserving of those who break the Ten Commandments. We see in this list that this is a list of us. What we should be seeing here when we look at the law, when we see what Paul is reminding the church there in Ephesus through Timothy, we are the disobedient and the ungodly. The law isn't intended for us to make these endless speculations and to go off into all these fanciful theories and what la la la, but its proper use is to show us our need of salvation. The false teachers in Ephesus weren't making proper use of the law. Evidently, they were abusing it to make it a means of their own righteousness. They represented the the law standards as humanly attainable, as just living up to them. And then they mixed in these genealogies and these myths and got into fanciful theories. They caused believers in Ephesus to misunderstand and ignore God's moral demands and tragically abandon the gospel of grace so well defined in the book of Ephesians. As I think about this for the ordering of the church, we see that the true understanding of the law and its relation to the gospel is essential for the teaching of the church. We don't need to move beyond it. We need to stick in it. God doesn't need our additions or our speculations. He has called us to be a light to the world, not to add to the confusion. His word makes it very clear. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of our sin is death. And in our sin, we are nothing more than lawless, disobedient, ungodly sinners. Some of us might be living in profanity. Others striking their fathers and their mothers. Some are murderers. Some are sexually deviant. Some practicing homosexuality. Some enslavers. We got a lot of liars, a lot of perjurers doing whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine. And all of those are deserving of death eternal separation from the holy God. That's the proper use of the law. Have you lied? Have you stolen? Have you used God's name in vain? Have you lusted? We learned in the Sermon on the Mount, all of those things, even just thinking about it, are the same as acting upon it. If you can say yes to any of those, God sees you as one of the people on those lists, as a liar, a thief, a blasphemer, an adulterer in art. If you die in your sins, as Brother Ray Comfort would say, you end up in a terrible place called hell. But there is a reason why I wanted to preach this message on Christmas Eve. Why I wanted to get to this text. I wasn't to bum everyone out on your way to the celebration later on tonight. I wanted to preach this message so that we would hear the proper use of the law See the reality of our sin and in turn understand what Mary understood when she gave birth to Jesus. You see, I think, in fact, Mary did know that her baby boy would go on to save our sons and daughters. I think the better question this morning 
is do you know? Because if you really want to celebrate Christmas, if you really want Christmas Eve to matter, if you really want to hear the bells on Christmas Day, if you want to appreciate the birth of Christ, then that happens by understanding the death of Christ. We broke God's law. We're on that list. He doesn't even have to check it twice. But Jesus paid the fine by dying on the cross. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus then rose from the dead and was seen by hundreds of eyewitnesses. He fulfilled all the prophecies of the promised Savior. Please, today, repent of your sins. Trust in Jesus. Understand why he stepped out of glory and was born in a manger. God will forgive you. God will grant you the gift of eternal life. Then we act on that. We, we show that we've received that gift by being in his word daily and obeying his word. By gathering together in the local church in the local grace and gift of God to be together. And we are baptized as a profession of our faith to the world. Church, we can't be a church without being centered on this message. And folks, we can't celebrate Christmas without understanding this message and believing it. Believe and respond today. Then have yourself a merry little Christmas. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to preach your word. Lord, I thank you for your law that shows me I am inadequate. I don't have what it takes on my own. There's nothing within me that can attain my righteousness. And you knowing that, yet loving me anyways, sent Christ, sent him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him I might become the righteousness of God. And Lord, I'm using a lot of first person pronouns, but that message ain't just for me. That message is for all those who hear and understand Jesus Christ as Lord and been called to repent of their sins and follow him. Lord, I pray that you would be granting that gift of repentance right now, that we would see the seriousness of our sins, that we would see we're on that list, deserving of death and turning from our sin towards you, seeking to use our lives every day for your glory. Lord, I pray that you're calling us home today. That your, your spirit would be calling us right now. Lord, that we would respond in this hymn of response, that those who know you would appreciate you more by hearing the truth of your law, that those who don't know you would come to know you today, that they would call on you. Everyone who believes in the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. Lord, thank you for your gift of salvation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.